These are tumultuous times. There's war overseas, an oil embargo too. Here in the U.S., businesses are hiking prices to record highs, including here at the gas station, where I'm in my car waiting for an empty pump. Gas prices have been climbing for months now, but today's price is still shocking. One gallon of gasoline, 62 cents. That's right, 62 cents. No, it's not 2022. Maybe I should have mentioned the music in the car and the groovy polyester suit I'm rocking on my morning commute. It's 1974. I can't believe I ate that whole thing. But these are urgent times, too. Embargo, the price of gas has reached these unprecedented levels. But these days, gas prices aren't the only thing that are stomach-churning. Inflation has wreaked havoc in the global financial markets, which are shifting faster than ever. In 1974, we're in the midst of the longest bear market since the Great Depression. The landscape is changing for investors and changing dramatically. What are things going to look like a year from now? Decades from now, not just at the gas station, but for investors everywhere navigating the unpredictable capital markets. These are uncertain times, but with great uncertainty, overlooked opportunities abound, not just in the 1970s, but also a half century later, when investors will look back at the days of disco with a haunting sense of deja vu. To understand today's investment landscape, it's important to understand how we got here. Welcome to season two of The Outthinking Investor, a podcast from Pigeon that untangles the past, the present day opportunities, and the future possibilities of the financial tools we take for granted. I'm your host, Albert Chen. In this episode, I'm joined by Catherine Nice and Ed Keon from Pigeon. With our two guests, we'll look to better understand today's inflationary shock and how it's likely to play out. What lessons can we learn from used cars? What can another year in history, the worst year ever to retire, it turns out, tell us about trends today? And while there are plenty of parallels between the 1970s and 2022, the differences are even more revealing. The first thing we need to do is lay the groundwork by defining inflation. We try to sort of break it down into different chunks. That's Catherine Nice, chief European economist for PGM Fixed Income and former Bank of England economist. She's here to tell us how economists think about inflation and take us beyond the general increase in prices. The first thing, if you think about the case of a supply shock hitting energy prices, like what we saw in the 70s or even now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the first immediate impact you're going to get is directly on the price at the pump, household energy bills, cost for firms. That direct 
effect happens pretty immediately and almost one for one and is pretty easy to forecast from a perspective of how it's going to hit headline inflation. Energy goes into nearly everything that we buy. So at some point, we started to see price increases in food, clothing, electronics, just about all goods and services that require energy. At the grocery store, bacon is up nearly 20% year over year. And if you've recently booked a flight for your upcoming summer vacation, you probably paid around 30% more than this time last year. But it's harder to predict the secondary effect when higher energy prices drive broader price increases. And over what horizon? It's just a lot harder to forecast. But of course, it's going to look like those price rises are pretty broad-based. And that's going to start to make monetary policymakers pretty nervous when they see these broad-based rises, even though this is just a sort of a ripple effect from these higher energy prices. According to Catherine, there's a third effect around what we call second round effects, something that those who are around in the disco era have seen before. If we get hit with a series of energy price shocks, like what we saw in the 70s, or if people start to believe that these higher prices are going to last for longer, then we start to see wages getting bid up. And that in turn starts to feed through to prices as well. And that's the part that the monetary authority is going to want to really clamp down on and try to avoid, you know, that third ripple from happening. Easier said than done. These indirect and secondary effects can be hard to distinguish in real time. And there's no control group for monetary policy. High stakes and a high degree of uncertainty have led to wide division of opinion, just like it did in the 70s. Back then, policymakers accepted high inflation as the price to pay for lower unemployment. Ultimately, of course, we had both high inflation and high unemployment. Today, some economists are saying, look, these broad-based rises are mainly indirect effects of an energy shock, and they'll settle out. Others are saying, not so fast. These are second-round effects that will become self-fulfilling and lead to price rises down the road if the central bank doesn't act swiftly. It's really once these higher energy prices, if they start to feed through to higher wages, that's when the central bank needs to react. And that, I would say, is probably the key differentiator between those two drivers when thinking about the impact on inflation and how policymakers should respond. Here's another thing we haven't seen before. Three million workers suddenly left the workforce. Gone, poof, just like that. Three million workers. In the early months of the pandemic, the participation rate experienced its biggest drop since World War II. It bounced back last summer, but is still hovering around the lowest level since 1970. This drop in the labor participation rate happened at the same time as the demand and supply shocks. Where those three million workers went or why they left is still pretty much a mystery. We don't know what, if anything, would lure them back. Even more importantly, we don't know the potential impact on wage inflation, whether they stay out or when they come back, and how that contributes to overall inflation, 
It's all relative. Just ask Ed Keon, Chief Investment Strategist at PGM Quantitative Solutions. There's a lot of evidence that people respond to their economic circumstances on a relative basis. That is how they're doing compared to their peer group, which might be their neighbors, it might be people in their town, it might be people in a similar line of work. Ed's been thinking about these issues for a while. His focus on the effects of inflation started with a master's thesis at MIT called The Causes and Cures of Inflation from 1974 to 1979. So there's plenty of studies that suggest that folks that live in a very poor country where the average wage might be $3 a day, someone who makes $10 a day thinks they're doing pretty well, even though compared to other parts of the world, that would be still very, very poor. Similarly, if you are a major league baseball player and you're a center fielder making a million dollars and the guy who's playing left field is about as good as you are is making three million, you get very resentful. Ed's takeaway? It's relative incomes and prices that matter for people's sense of well-being. And when you suddenly get a shock where things you're buying are going up a lot in price, you tend to respond by trying to demand higher prices for the things you sell, including your, your labor. So we saw that this time around really quite dramatically. So early on in, the, in this inflationary jump, it was used cars, new cars, oil and gas, and some other things that jumped the most in price. That's right. Aside from oil and gas, used cars can tell us a lot about what's going on. And what happened is those eventually spread out. In other words, instead of that, we've seen plenty of other jumps in oil prices from time to time over the last several years but they haven't led to overall level inflation. This time it was more dramatic and it was, it was accompanied by some other goods, especially most notably autos. So if that theory is correct, then you would expect that once some of the prices of some of these leading goods, one of that, one of that shock starts to wear out. Let's test out this theory by turning to the Mannheim Used Vehicle Value Index. The Mannheim Used Vehicle Value Index is the main index to identify pricing trends of used cars in the U.S. And it can tell us about a lot more than just used cars. Since it was created in 1995, this sleepy index has mostly floated around the 120 to 125 mark. That is, until the twin demand and supply shocks hit in 2021. Then the value of used cars suddenly surged, and the index spiked by over 100 points. It's come down a bit from that high mark, but remains far from its long-term trend. So there's some evidence, at least, that some of the things that really drove prices higher, basically goods prices, that is, we've gone back to some semblance of normal, and people have gone back to going to restaurants and, and buying services, getting haircuts. The demand for goods has softened a little bit. Yeah, also some of the logistical problems, like all those ships lined up at the ports of Long Beach and so forth, that seems to be getting a little bit better. Supply chain disruptions have battered the auto industry. Computer chips are still the weak link in the automotive supply chain. That's along with thousands of other parts that go into the assembly line. And as new car inventories have tanked, demand has spilled over into the used car market. What does Ed think this tells us about headline inflation going forward? So I think we might find that on a month-over-month basis, inflation is going to stay high year-over-year for a while. You might see at least some of these things which drove prices higher will start to moderate and maybe even come down significantly in price. Now, on the other hand, there are some 
parts of, of the inflation indices, which are really just getting started. One of the biggest examples of an area of the economy taking off? Shelter. That probably isn't a surprise to anyone who's been looking to rent or purchase. Shelter is measured as part of the consumer price index in two components, rent and owner's equivalent rent, which essentially is the monthly equivalent to owning a home. Recently, the price of shelter has skyrocketed. But that's not yet really reflected in the price indices. It's kind of a lag there. So that is going to be a source that pushes, especially the consumer price index, where shelter is about a third of the index. That's going to keep pushing up the year-over-year numbers. But the, the goods prices that really got us into this, this mess starting a little more than a year ago, I think those are going to start to moderate. So my best guess is that, if you, especially if you believe in my explanation of why inflation takes off, that it really has to do with uh, disruptions to the relative price structure that are big enough to change it, that we should start to see inflation come down significantly from kind of 8.5% on CPI. The question remains, if inflation persists, as many economists expect, how will it feed into wages and potentially the Federal Reserve's pace in raising interest rates? Wage growth was so low for so long, particularly at lower income levels. And now that this segment is seeing wages rise faster, should we worry that wage inflation could spiral? So the notion that we're going to get a kind of a wage price spiral where wages are going up so much that they keep pushing inflation higher, even if kind of goods prices start to fall. We're not there yet. And so far, until we start to get, if we get much higher wage growth where it's above inflation, I think it's unlikely that we get a wage price, a spiral of the sort that maybe you saw in the 1970s. As you can imagine, Ed gets a lot of questions about whether we're going back to the days of disco. And here's what he thinks. We just got a GDP report this morning that showed uh, GDP actually down by over 1% in the first quarter of 2022. So those fears of stagflation, kind of a 1970s term, have started to come back. And is that a, a realistic fear? The inflation in the 1970s really started in the 60s with inflation rising with uh, increase in spending for the Vietnam War at a time we're already at low unemployment and full capacity. And it, it was exacerbated by some very poor policy decisions on the part of the Fed. Uh, wage and price controls were put in in the early 1970s. Then you, you got the oil price shock. So you had a, a back and forth, but it lasted really not just the 70s, but it started in the late 60s and continued into the early 80s. This time around, uh, inflation is still you know, relatively recent. Again, as, as early as last February, February of 2021, we were talking about inflation that was under 2%. Today's demand and supply shocks underlie a very different environment compared with the 70s. But no matter the cause, sustained inflation can have devastating effects, especially for people living on a fixed income and especially when it coincides with a market correction. It was exactly that combination that made the worst year on record to retire. That year? 1966. If you retired in 1966, you had the highest risk of outliving your savings on average because of the steady inflation and stock market losses that followed. 1966 doesn't sound as dramatic as other times like the Great Depression or Black Monday or even the global financial crisis, but it led to a steady chipping away of purchasing power for years to come. 
So what's the remedy here? Can we weather an inflation storm any better with a little foresight? Unfortunately, inflation is difficult to predict. Sophisticated models and decades of data haven't moved the needle much. Central bankers and market participants have a poor track record of forecasting headline inflation, even in the near term. Why the poor track record? Here's Catherine. The first thing I would say is that, you know, I think the assessment is a little bit too harsh. Models are incredibly important. They give us a disciplined, coherent way of thinking about a very complex system like the economy. But of course, they don't give us the answer. If they did, we could get rid of the Fed. We could get rid of the European Central Bank. We could just run an algorithm and and get the answer we need and, and set policy according to that. Of course, things aren't that simple. The world's much more complicated. We need these models to think about things coherently, but then we need to have you know, a judgmental overlay to come to a decision, particularly in times like what we're experiencing now, where we're being hit by completely unprecedented shocks, things like a pandemic or now a war in Europe. And even if the Fed or the European Central Bank could have predicted the recent demand and supply shocks, would the outcome have been any different? Could any central bank have changed the course to a tighter monetary policy in 2021? So there's the quality and quantity of information available. And then there's the will to use it. I think it's also important to distinguish between what's happening in different regions. Yes, inflation's going up pretty much everywhere. But for example, the drivers of that inflation in the US and in Europe are really very different. In the US, you're seeing a very strong labor market, very strong demand pushing up on inflation. Whereas in Europe, a good chunk of the overall inflation surprise that we've seen over the last year is due to unanticipated higher energy prices that even the energy markets themselves were not predicting a year ago. Another big chunk, of course, are these unprecedented supply distortions that we're seeing from economies being locked down and then reopening, which again is something that none of us have really experienced before. And so it's not surprising if it's hard to forecast with precision the impact that's going to have on things like headline inflation. If it's difficult for the Federal Reserve to manage inflation risk, and that is literally one of their primary purposes, Where does that leave institutional investors? Can we hedge inflation risk with inflation-sensitive assets? Well, inflation is a tough thing to hedge. And the hedges that exist tend to be pretty expensive right now because everybody wants to hedge against inflation. So the most obvious and straightforward one is to buy government or treasury inflation-protected securities or TIPs. There's also the conventional wisdom that commodities are an efficient hedge against inflation because they're more sensitive to current economic conditions. And you can target that exposure depending on your views. So that could be anything from energy to to metals like copper or nickel. And the, the advantage of that is that if you do see continued increase in commodity prices, and I think there's some reasons to believe that, uh, of course, the, the war in Ukraine among them, but there's reasons to believe that you'll see some upward pressure on commodities. We need a, a ton of commodities if we're going to go to a low-carbon future to, to manufacture 
solar panels, for example. And yet there hasn't been a lot of investment in new investment in mining in these areas for a long time. Similarly, on, on energy, it's pretty clear we need a transition to a low carbon future, but we're going to need some energy, carbon energy, in order to make that transition. The most important probably being natural gas. What about gold? Can sustained inflation finally offer the gold bugs a chance at redemption? Maybe. But they'll have to overcome two long-standing hurdles of holding gold. The opportunity cost of foregoing dividends and interest, and the tangible cost of holding securities or physicals. And finally, there's always equities. And somewhat surprisingly, if you look in a, in a long run, Stocks have been a good heads against inflation. In the short run, they're not. So in the short run, you've seen as inflation has jumped up, stock prices have gone down, especially technology companies or other companies who are very sensitive to interest rates. One thing is certain, we're living in a time of great uncertainty and likely continued volatility for the near future. A disciplined investment approach is an important asset to stay on course and avoiding herd behavior. To paraphrase Maslow, when you're holding a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. Also, uh, I think it's helpful to have a you know, quantitative approach. That is where you can model what has happened in the past and try to apply it to the current situation. And I think the combination of both, of having some quantitative work to help identify what makes sense, where, where valuations seem attractive, where do we get higher momentum, where we get higher quality of assets, Combining that kind of a quantitative approach, I think, with the seasoned judgment of people that have been through periods like this before and have realized that there will be another side of this, there will be a brighter day at some point. And even though it's, it may seem dark at some times, uh, I suppose it's a little trite to say the darkest hour before the dawn, but that often turns out to be the case. Investors hope it's the case that markets stabilized for the remainder of 2022 and going into 2023. From where I sit, back in 1974, and still waiting for a pump to open up, the future does look bright. I'm blissfully unaware of the second oil shock to come, even higher interest rates, and the recession that follows. But long-term investors know that every market cycle has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Unlike my polyester leisure suits, which... I'm confident we'll still be in fashion for decades. Thanks to P. Jim's Ed Keon and Catherine Neese. Join me, Albert Chen, for the next episode of The Outthinking Investor, when we'll dig into the challenges and opportunities of investing in private markets, from private debt to alternatives. The Outthinking Investor is a podcast from P. Jim. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, go ahead and give us a review. This podcast is intended solely for professional investor use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments involve risk, including the loss of capital. PGM is not acting as your fiduciary. The contents are for informational purposes only, are based on information available when created, and are subject to change. It is not intended as investment, legal, or tax advice, and does not consider a recipient's financial objectives. This podcast includes the views and opinions of the authors and may not reflect PGM's views. PGM and its related entities may make investment decisions that are inconsistent with the views expressed herein. This podcast should not be reproduced without PGM's prior written consent. No liability is accepted for any direct, indirect, 
or consequential loss that may arise from any use of the information contained in or derived from this podcast. This material is not for distribution to any recipient located in any jurisdiction where such distribution is unlawful. PGIM is the global asset management business of Prudential Financial Inc., which is not affiliated in any manner with Prudential PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom, or with Prudential Assurance Company, a subsidiary of MG PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom. Copyright 2022. The PGIM logo and the rock symbols are service marks of PGIM's parent and its related entities registered in many jurisdictions worldwide.